Welcome to Post Do, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd, and in this episode, I speak with one of my favorite authors, Tim Watkins. Tim's blog, as the same as the title of his book, The Consciousness of Sheep, Tim's a uh, kind of a polymath. I mean, he's just brilliant in a number of different areas. He weaves them together, writes brilliantly. And you'll see, we had fun in this conversation. And even though it was recorded long before coronavirus, it's as relevant as ever. Enjoy. Tim, I've been looking forward to this. I have, uh, uh, I first learned about your consciousness of sheep both the book, but especially your website. I've not read the book yet. I've had it sent to where we're going to be actually beginning in three weeks. But your website and your writings integrate, in my opinion, the most important stuff related to energy, climate, and you also uh, bring in human nature that a lot of other writers don't. Um, but I, I'm, I'd like you at the beginning here to share, help us get what you're about what you know what you're passionate about or interested in and uh also if you could just uh, help the listener or the viewer of this um have a have a sense of what you offer on your amazing uh web website blog uh, consciousness of sheep consciousness of sheep the title came to me uh i sat in a restaurant on the welsh english border which is sort of hilly uplands sort of very scrub grass and you can't grow any crops or anything on it so mainly we do sheep and i sort of watch these sheep it's, it's sort of blowing snow across the hills and in the middle of this snowstorm there's the farmer out there bringing straw out and sort of making sure the sheep are okay uh, and it struck me that if you were a sheep you'd kind of think that the farmer was working for you. Uh, like you, you sort of all of your needs are being catered for. Uh, so actually the first part of the book, I, I sort of go into what happens to sheep. Uh, one of the things I did just after I left school was actually helped out on the farm for a while. So I've seen that whole process from sort of bringing in the lambs, sort of any male lambs, of course, are separated out quite quickly. Uh, you keep a few of the ewes back for breeding, but you know, most of them are going to end up at the slaughterhouse and then uh, in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's the nature of how we farm. Because um, uh, it struck me then that if you're a sheep, you'd be sort of looking at that process. It's only right at the end when you're being marched into the slaughterhouse that you'd have any wider awareness of what was really going on. Uh, now, it turns out I wasn't the only person to have that idea. There's a guy, Robert Persig, who wrote uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, mm -hmm. in a later book, Lila, he actually says the same thing. But then he asks, well, what if we humans are experiencing something similar to sheep? That what if there's this entity that we think is benign, that we think looks after our every need, but that actually it has a different purpose to us that might be more sinister? Uh, and of course, that's industrial civilization, of which we are merely sort of individual cogs in much bigger wheels. Um, so that was my starting point with this. So it, I really only started thinking about this stuff back in 2008 when the economy went down the pan. Uh, I guess until that point, I, mean, I was working running a mental health charity. Uh, and my assumption, which I guess everybody has, is that sort of clever people somewhere else are dealing with things. Um, you know, so if you're like, I'm not a climate scientist, so I have to assume that climate scientists are kind of dealing with it. 
yeah, I'm not an oil geologist. I have to assume that oil geologists kind of know what's going on in the energy space. I'm not a grid engineer, so I have to assume that grid engineers are kind of dealing with stuff. Mm -hmm. The problem is that you get into it and you find that each of these people is in their silo and they're kind of aware of their bit of the problem. But when it comes to the whole thing, nobody is connecting it together. Uh, now, it turned out that one of my skills, and I mean possibly a disability, I don't know, um, is that I'm able to, to sort of connect disparate ideas. And it's something I've always done. I mean, it's a, I, mean, I suspect that I'm borderline autistic. Uh, I've never been diagnosed, but mm -hmm. I fit the, the criteria. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think it was just that ability or that disability that I would see things differently to other people and start connecting things and start. So one of the things that I'm working on, and I really still haven't pinned this down, is this relationship between the energy economy and the monetary economy. Um, now, the, there are people back from the 1930s that looked into it. Uh, now, as it happened, the Keynesian model of, the, of economics was the one that won through in the end. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people that were looking at energy and economics lost out. Now, I think the only economist that I'm aware of at the moment in the world who's looking at energy economics is a guy called Steve Keen, an Australian guy. But the, one of the problems we have at the moment is an assumption by the people who are put in charge of the economy of the world that actually energy and real resources don't matter and that everything is to do with money. Um, so if you like, all of the talk at the moment is like, are we about to have a recession? Should we raise or lower interest rates? Do we need to do another round of quantitative easing? And the assumption behind that is that controlling the amount of money in circulation will somehow sort of keep the economy going. Now, I think the more I got into it, because I believed all of this stuff back in the day. I mean, it's, it's what we're taught in university. It's, you, know, you kind of assume that's how things work. The more I got into it, the more I was hearing voices that were saying, well, hang on a minute, Joe. Did you realize that money is created out of thin air? Uh, were you aware that they, it only works if it's able to sort of pull real resources forward? And were you aware that the amount of resources left on the planet for us to pull forward are probably nowhere near what we need to keep the civilization going? Yes. Uh, you know, so suddenly you get into this whole space where you have fossil fuels on the one hand, and the crisis there is that we've burned through all the good stuff. Uh, in fact, one of the positive things for the climate possibly is that we cannot achieve the worst case scenarios because we haven't got enough accessible fossil fuel to do them. Uh, yeah, and it's always then fingers crossed that we don't find any, otherwise we probably will choke ourselves to death. Yeah, and by accessible, uh, you don't mean just uh, physically accessible, but also economically viable. Yes, I mean, in the end, that's about energy viable. So that, I, I think Charles Hall talks about, you know, if it costs you one barrel of oil to go and get one barrel of oil, then there's no point in doing it. Right. Uh, now, I think when you look at some of the practices with fracking for oil, I mean, bearing in mind that America has probably a lot of advantages with its shale deposits. I mean, they're very wide, there's very few geological fractures in them. So compared to the rest of the world, America probably is going to do it as cheaply as it can be done. You cannot produce oil out of fracking at anything like the, the amount of return that you would need to run an advanced society. Um, now, the way that plays out is actually quite problematic because, as I say, there's this problem of how do we link that energy economics to the financial economics. 
what we do know as a theoretical model is if the more of the energy you're producing has to go into producing energy, then the less you have for everything else. And I think as Steve Keen says, I mean, capital without energy is a statue, labor without energy is a corpse, that we cannot do things without energy. Say that again. Uh, he says capital without energy is a statue, labor without energy is a corpse. Got it. Um, yeah, now, one of the ways it manifests from where I'm sat is our, you know, actually the rise of Donald Trump is one of the ways it manifests, you know, that people are looking to extremes to solve problems that are no longer solvable. Yes. Another way it plays out, if you look at downtown San Francisco, where you know, I mean, there's these maps showing where the human feces is on the streets. Uh, now, I think as far as I'm aware, that hasn't come to the UK yet, but it isn't going to be long. Uh, I mean, certainly the homeless population here is exploding. Uh, the other way it plays out is we start to collect things that we used to be able to do that we no longer can do. Uh, this becomes problematic. I mean, my two favorites are sending humans to the moon and running supersonic commercial flight. Uh, the interesting thing with that is you know, it raises that there, there are more than one, or there is more than one kind of not being able to do something. Yes. So that clearly, theoretically, we still know how to send people to the moon. I mean, if, if humanity collectively decided that was what we absolutely had to do, then we could still do it. But at an economic level, it's no longer possible because the energy that we have to put into doing it is the return is not worth the energy we put in. Uh, the same was true with commercial supersonic flight. That you know, It was great that movie stars and sort of biz big business people could fly across the Atlantic in a couple of, uh, what was it, about three hours. Uh, so it actually takes me longer on a train from where I live to London than it would have taken on Concord to get from London to New York, uh, you know, which is a bizarre thing to be, you know, I mean, what a miracle. <laughs> um, uh, the problem with it was that the rest of the public were having to subsidize the Concords so that you know, these business people were getting a, a free handout from people who increasingly were less able to afford it. Now, my fear is at the moment that renewable energy is in much the same place. So you know, a lot of people are holding out this hope that we can sort of put windmills and solar panels everywhere. And that in some way will save the day. The difficulty when you look into it is actually the cost of getting anywhere near replacing our primary energy uh, from fossil fuels is just beyond us. Uh, there aren't the resources in the ground anymore to do it. Uh, now, I, I think I wrote a piece a couple of weeks back that I titled, Why Do You Hate Renewables? It was a friend of mine actually asked me that question because I'd been doing this downer on, you know, it's awful that people are sort of investing everything. In. Mm -hmm. And because it struck me, I'm not actually opposed to renewables. I just think it's very dangerous for us to believe that we can continue the way we've been doing, but sort of unplug the coal and the gas power stations and plug renewables in instead. Uh, the, there's just no way conceivably that we have the resources or the energy to do that. What we can do is actually, I think, you know, I mean, depending on how you see collapse happening, I mean, I tend to see it as fairly slow motion, that it may be we can preserve some of the better things out of the industrial civilization. Uh, so, I mean, something like reasonably good healthcare. It might be that we could preserve that if we have wind turbines, solar panels, and batteries rigged up to a hospital. Um, yeah, but seeing it that way rather than that I'm still going to be able to talk to somebody on the other side of the planet via Skype or whatever, yeah. uh, 
you know, at the end of the day, it may be that we lose conversations like this. The, I grew up in a house where I, not every room had an electricity plug point. And at the time, there were a lot of electrical goods like hair dryers and stuff that plugged into the light socket rather than the plug, because nobody was really sure whether electricity was going to be a big thing or not. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's back at a time where quite regularly the electricity would just go off. Um, you know, I mean, power cuts were fairly regular. Um, now, fortunately, because we had fewer electrical goods, you could live with power cuts in those days. They, nowadays, it becomes a lot harder. Um, yeah, again, there is a problem with modern civilization when you talk about degrowth or unplugging. Uh, Tim, help us get a sense. Okay, so the heart of this particular podcast series is people sharing their journeys, their stories, um, uh, rather than just sort of the talking points that they're famous for and have written a lot about, which is all good stuff. But um, how did you come to an understanding of contraction? Um, those of us who were born in the mid-20th century um, or sooner had a certain expectation that things were getting better, things were, you know, on the way up, that, you know, the secular religion of perpetual progress, you could say. Mm. Um, and then that shifted. And so anything and everything that you would want to share in terms of the key moments for you and how that, uh, how going from uh, what William Catton calls carrying capacity surplus to carrying capacity deficit, um, mm. how did that occur to you? Um, uh, over the course of time? Well, as, as I was born in 1960, which probably is just about the end of uh, I mean, is that generation that probably will be the apex of sort of human technological and industrial sort of achievement. Uh, interestingly, I was having that conversation with a friend of mine this morning, uh, where I talk about this magic 20 years. Uh, it's 1953 to 73 where we sort of exploded. I mean, kind of more than doubled the amount of output. I, I think that, uh, is it Paul Kennedy reckons that there, there was as much production in those 20 years as in the 150 years that preceded it. Um, now, part of that is to do with exponential growth. That part of it was just that explosion that came after the Second World War. So if you were born sometime around the Second World War, and assuming you didn't get caught up in the war itself, that you were in this kind of really privileged generation that uh, sort of people write about, you know, we live like kings or emperors. And actually, that generation lived like gods. Uh, you know, I mean, if you read the sort of Greek gods, you know, they, they only got to fly around Greek islands in the Aegean Sea. Uh, we think, think nothing of hopping on an airplane and flying to the other side of the world in a matter of hours. Uh, and again, take it for granted all too often, yes. rather than seeing just how special this is. Uh, now, some of it from, I mean, was, yeah, part of the British thing was because people had gone through such hardship, both in the Depression and the war, that there was this mentality of you know, no other generation will suffer this. Uh, you know, I will not let my children endure this. So most parents then looked to this idea that we were all going to be better off than the generation that preceded us. Uh, now, I think to a degree, my generation was. You know, we were the first to grow up with sort of penicillin to take away all of the childhood illnesses. Mm. Uh, I mean, vaccinations were just coming in so that you didn't have things like polio or measles even to sort of wipe you out. Uh, you know, so the number of children surviving the early years was growing. Uh, I mean, education was extended. I mean, it's not that long before I went into school that the school leaving age was increased from 15 to 16. Um, 
you know, so I mean, at the time you just thought you did basic education, then went off to work. All of a sudden, education became this thing that was important. Mm -hmm. um, now, while I was in school, I mean, you had this shift in the culture with, I mean, Harold Wilson brought in this thing about the white heat of technology, but it was this idea that in the 60s, we were undergoing some kind of revolution. Uh, and again, that we were all going to be materially better off. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as it happens, I arrived out of the school and into the workforce just at the point where that was changing. Yep. Uh, I mean, I left school in 1977. It was great. You could walk out of school and walk into a job the other side of the road without a problem. Yes. Two years later, Margaret Thatcher arrived on the scene and that went. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, all of a sudden, the dole queues were long. The jobs that you could get weren't there as much. So straight away, I mean, my sort of working life appeared to be this sort of treadmill where I was always running to catch up. Um, now, I left school without a university degree and went back into university having got to a point where there weren't jobs around. So I went back and did a mature student degree. Mm -hmm. uh, now, fortunately, by the time I came out of university, the, the economy was recovering again, so there was work around. I did public policy work for a while, which sort of was where I developed sort of being able to do the research and writing. Uh, then ended up having a massive episode of depression in the late 1990s, mm -hmm. uh, which took well, me about- what, what, was, what was the precipitation? I mean, give us a sense of, of, of what, uh, what you imagine or what you know led into that and then what, were the, what was it that helped you come through that? Uh, so in terms of what it took me into it, it was the breakdown of my marriage. Uh, and then, I mean, as with a lot of people with depression, I think similar experience that just gradually your resilience sort of is sapped away from you mm -hmm. uh, so that you couldn't look at any one thing and say, oh, this is what caused it. It was just this gradual not coping at work, not coping at home, mm -hmm. sort of gradually things going to waste. You stop doing things that you used to enjoy doing, kind of, yeah, there's that withdrawing inwards. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, probably the medical profession didn't help a great deal by giving me a, uh, a prescription for drugs that actually caused me to put on about five stone in weight. Uh, so I, so I spent 1999, I think, eating as much fresh bread and cheese as I could get my hands on. <laughs> uh, and again, I, one of the privileges of that stage, because you, you couldn't do my recovery journey anymore, the various backup services that I had access to eventually i mean you didn't get them straight away but i was able to go into sort of rehabilitations and uh, day hospitals setting and gradually work my way through and sort of figure out how to get out the other side um i've since written books about that journey really um I, one of the things it prompted me to do was to actually run the uh, i mean i got involved with the charity as a volunteer but eventually ended up running it Mm -hmm. uh, but that was, I mean, partly it was about my experience, but partly one of the first things I did was set out to gather other people's experience. So essentially, you know, how did you become depressed? What was the depression like? And then what did you do to dig yourself out of it? Well, I, I just want to pause for one second because you said something that um, is rather extraordinary, but you just sort of zipped through it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I know of a couple of other people that have had something similar. Uh, which is, you said you began volunteering and you ended up becoming the director or running the place. Hmm. Um, what was it about your own process that, that facilitated that? I think partly it was that I'd come to it with skills that were necessary to the role. 
Um, I mean, part of it was just passion that, you know, I mean, I was aware that this, is ha this had happened to me and it was happening to a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. And that actually a lot of what was being put forward as medical support wasn't particularly good. Uh, you know, so a lot of people were given their antidepressant pills and that's fine as far as it goes. Uh, yeah, but it isn't a road out to recovery. Um, you know, talking therapies, again, I mean, yes, they're part of a solution, but they're not the whole thing. Um, you know, so my own journey out was about a sort of much more holistic approach. Uh, I mean, I've since likened it to when people get into sort of meditation, sort of, you know, I mean, some of the sort of more yoga and Buddhist type stuff that a lot of the experiences they talk about you have in a kind of deformed way with depression. Uh, the big difference with depression is you lack boundaries. Uh, is it Alvin Toffler in Presentation of Self in Everyday Life talks about a, it was an experiment done in the US where they got actors to play the part of mental patients and sort of infiltrated them into the mental hospital and none of the psychiatrists or the doctors could tell the difference, but the patients themselves could tell because uh, yes. your boundaries are shot. You're aware that this guy in front of me is playing the part of and of course, all of us in our daily lives play the part of whatever role it is that we're paid to play. Uh, you know, so back in the days when I was a policy researcher, I played the part of a policy researcher. Um, yeah, the real me would be hidden behind that barrier. Because mm -hmm. the psychiatrists and the psychologists were also playing their roles and they had their barriers up. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that you want desperately when you're depressed is human contact. And what you're presented with is people who have barriers in front of them that are standing in the way of human contact. Start to talk to people about what, what, who helped you in the end. You know, who was it that kick-started your recovery? Now, the initial thought was, would it be a particular profession? Like, you know, psychology is better than psychiatry. Or turned out that there wasn't a profession. But what everyone had in common was somebody in a professional role that dropped the barrier. So essentially, I'm not going to relate to you as your therapist. I'm going to relate to you as another human being who is also struggling with all of this shit. <laughs> and the moment that happened, you had this sort of, I wouldn't say it led automatically to recovery, but it gave you the space within which recovery could begin. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, because there's no way you can prescribe that because yeah, it is a personal choice of both the therapist and the patient as to whether they're going to drop those boundaries. We're well into the uh, greatest mental health crisis um, in memory. Uh, as more and more people get uh, resource depletion, peak oil, climate catastrophe, and the possibility of abrupt climate change, which could wink out things very rapidly, um, collapsing civilization, the, the, the political insanity, the economic ins insanity, all that stuff. And as people begin to lose that um, or continue to lose more deeply their secular religion of perpetual progress, um, their faith in, in that things would always get better, there will be increasingly a need to help people cope with all forms of addiction, all forms of, of uh, mental uh, and relational and emotional challenges. And so what you just shared, I think, is really vital in that. It's the personal connection of having somebody else be willing to be vulnerable. That's one of the things that motivated me to do this series, was to have these thought leaders and, and amazing writers and, and activists and what have you,
also share some of their personal stuff because anybody listening to this or watching this is going to say, wow, I've held this person on a pedestal. And yet there's something about sharing our own anger, our own depression, our own uh, uh, grief and so forth that can be healing and freeing to somebody who may be experiencing that and doesn't see a way through, doesn't see a way out, doesn't see a way to get to post-doom. All they're aware of is doom. Yeah, I mean, the books that I wrote about dealing with depression, I've, there's a couple that I've done that are self-help books, you know, how to manage depression. There's the one helping hands that I did that's for people helping people. What I, what I do there is a model that we worked on a cross-European project back what, 15 years ago where we scoped out this model. But you look at a person in terms of there's this outer layer where we connect socially behind that is a sort of mental thinking you know, sort of how am I interacting there's also this emotional side to us I sort of dig ever deeper you get into the spiritual side uh, somewhere in the middle is some absolute you know, sort of seed of purpose uh, the Buddhists call it Dharma and uh, that I come into the world with this mission of some kind uh, Christianity talks about mission I think uh, yeah, so it, it, it's an idea that spans religions, that mm -hmm. you don't come into the world empty. You come into the world with some purpose, something that you're going to apply your life to. Uh, now, of course, the, the circumstances that sort of either throw you off or bang you back on target, you know, I mean, that varies and you know, God knows where this ends up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I consider that. I, I, I don't see beliefs as true or false, right or wrong. Mm. I see beliefs as either useful or not, empowering mm. or not, inspiring or not. And so I hold the belief that uh, I came with a purpose, not as some ontological truth uh, mm. that's out there in the universe with a big T. Uh, I hold it as a profoundly useful belief. If I act as if this is true, then it can give coherence and focus and direction to my life. It allows me to deal with challenges in a more uh, mm. fruitful way and so forth. Yeah, and I mean, certainly all of the evidence is that people that have a belief in something, whether it be religious or even political, mm -hmm. tend to fare better with crises than people that have no belief at all. Yes. Now, actually, that said, it, it's not something that you can just have. Right. Um, you know, so I've been through periods of my life where I've really struggled to believe anything. Uh, you know, and I'm aware that kind of, oh, you know, if only I could believe you know, whatever story it is. Uh, you know, but when you're in that place you know, where you have lost hope, then you know, actually you can't just go to the local store and pick up something off the shelf. Uh, so you have to work it through. I, one of the most profound ideas that I came across when I was depressed, uh, I think it has a connection with the Buddhists talk about that God is playing a game of hide and seek. So that essentially we each come into the world, but we're detached from that which we need to find. Uh, so that we have this sense of deep spiritual longing for something. Uh, now, I've heard it expressed elsewhere as the God-shaped hole. That, you know, we are not whole. We have this kind of missing bit that we are constantly trying to fill. Uh, now, sometimes you'll do it with a relation. I mean, I heard people saying that we're like letter C's, and when two people come together, they kind of form a hole for a while. But because they're competing with each other, it kind of eventually breaks down because you have to find the hole in yourself. Uh, but the other side of it, which I think is pertinent to the kind of climate crisis and the economic crisis, is we each have this drive to find something in the outside world. So we are constantly devouring stuff. 
Um, now we see it in addictions. So, yeah, I mean, whether it's smoking, yeah, I need to take this nicotine in, or it could be heroin. I've got to inject this stuff or alcohol on. Or uh, internet it, gaming or internet porn, which so many people yes, do. Yes, sure. Yeah. yeah, whatever it is that's kind of yeah, your, yeah, I've got to have this thing. And I, part of the problem with it is, if you like, when we are mentally balanced, you'll find that a small quantity of this stuff actually does help you de-stress. So it's kind of like, I mean, you drink coffee. You have one cup of coffee, it gives you a lift, it's fine. If you're at the point where you're drinking sort of espresso coffee two or three times an hour, then you're going to be completely wired. And right. you know, same with alcohol. You finish a day's work, you have a glass of wine, or you go to the local bar and have a glass of beer or whatever, that's fine. You unwind, you have a chat with people, it's great. Mm-hmm. If what you're doing is sort of drinking you know, sort of 10 pints of the strongest lager you can get your hands on or drinking several bottles of wine or bottles of spirit, mm-hmm. of you know, actually you have a problem. Exactly. Um, you know, so if you like all of these things which we learn and all of us have at least one. Um, you know, so mine used to be smoking and drinking. I've given both those up. Yeah. You know, so I now have a problem with overeating. Before we move on, I mean, one of the things I, I would say, uh, uh, which I think is crucial to our situation, is that the pursuit of money is also a driving addiction. Amen. Uh, Absolutely. Now, I, part of the problem, for, certainly for people like me, I don't know about your circumstances. We never had enough money to particularly be addicted to it. <laughs> uh, but I, I, Nate Hagens tells this story about the sort of billionaire guy whose wife is giving birth in the sort of theater and the guy is outside in the corridor phoning to find out how his shares are doing. Uh, now, yeah, that is classic addiction behavior. <laughs> Uh, Of course, the problem with that, because of the way we create money out of thin air, but with interest attached, is that you have these guys that are actually running the system at the top level, who've instigated a system that requires the entire world to fuel that addiction. And ultimately, going back to what I was saying about this sort of link between finance and the real world, that of course, interest-bearing money creation equals depleting the planet. Uh, so if you like, we have a system that is driven by addiction that actually says we have to keep devouring. And the fact that more and more of us are raising the alarm and saying, look, for God's sake, uh, you know, when I, when I was young, I'd ride a motorcycle through South Wales and get covered in insects. I, now, if you drive a car, you don't see a single insect on the windscreen. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't have to talk about a crisis. the science just open our eyes and we can see it. Uh, yeah, I go to the local shoreline and there's plastic everywhere. <laughs> kind of, uh, my local river is dying again. I mean, it came back to life briefly uh, after the coal industry closed because I used to run black like treacle. Uh, I, about a decade after the coal mines closed, the river cleaned up and you started getting fish in there and it started to look decent. Mm-hmm. It's now being choked again because they're building housing without building the sewage networks to go with it. So you get an open sewage dump back in the rivers. Um, you know, all of that is driven by this kind of ultimately our addiction to debt-based money. Um, yeah, and in a sense, the fact that, okay, I haven't got enough money to be addicted to it. Maybe you haven't, but the guys at the top who run everything have, yes. and they are driven by this stuff. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I mean, if you had a billion dollars in front of you now, you would struggle to spend it. Um, you know, there, there is nothing in your life that you couldn't have with it. And yet these guys want more. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's interesting because one of the things that uh, Ugo Bardi and I were talking about just, just an hour ago um, is the limits and our, mm. uh, what seems to mark the difference between sustainable cultures and unsustainable civilizations um, is uh, what, you know, what, what William Offels calls immoderate greatness, that sense of, of hubris, that arrogance, and that sense of more and more. It's all about more and more. Whereas sustainable cultures, uh, indigenous cultures, first peoples who can, and early horticultural cultures um, were able to live with and, and necessarily lived with a sense of sacred limits, that limits were sacred if anything was, because there's something about the human animal in relation to its, its living world, its ecosphere, its biosphere, its environment, that if we don't honor limits, if we're not checked by other species, then we have to create our own limits and we're not really good at that. And so religion or life ways has to evolve to honor limits. And um, even though Connie, my wife and I have been for 18 years traveling and living in other people's homes and speaking in colleges, churches, universities, synagogues, what have you. Um, we, so we're technically homeless in that we don't have a home. We don't have an apartment yet because we live in other people's surplus housing, which is often really quite amazing. And we're following our bliss, doing what we love to do, speaking about where science, inspiration, and deep sustainability intersect. We feel like we're the richest people in the world. We feel like we're, we're you know, wealthier than kings, richer than kings, even though we live a very simple life. But we have joy and we have time to invest in this kind of thing here, you know, this kind of uh, uh, conversation series. Mm -hmm. um, so how we measure wealth, and I, I agree with you, there's a profound addiction to um, to wealth, to money, um, that uh, can happen. Uh, and it's kind of like the more you have, the more you want you have. And, mm. um, you know, that's why I ultimately have to live. Uh, probably it's my addictive nature that has me live a simple life mm. because if I had a lot, I'd kind of trigger the same thing I do with sex and drugs and alcohol and all the rest of the things that if mm. I want a little, you know, if I have a little bit, my God, I'm going to want more, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've been there. I mean, that was me. I mean, certainly on the road into the depression. Yes, sure. Uh, yeah, and again, it's yeah, partly it's that sense of need that, and yes, if I can have that, I want more. No. Um, yeah, yeah. In, in, in a way, I, in a way, I, I'm a more addict. I'm a more addict. Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of something that really makes me feel good. Uh, I'm definitely going to want more of that, and uh, I'd like it right now, please, or today, you know, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, or yesterday, if you can do it. Yeah, right, exactly. I, mean, so I remember I, uh, actually watching myself. Uh, it was the last car that I bought. I don't have a car nowadays. I don't actually need one just now. Good for you. Uh, but I, I traded up. It's, my mother was dying of cancer. I had a need to get her back and forth to hospital. So I needed a bigger car than the one that I had. Uh, so I sort of told myself a story in my head that, oh, I have to have this car because you know, and I'll, it'll be useful for work and, and, and. Uh, but in a way, I mean, I was also justifying to myself, I'm going to buy a bigger car because I want a bigger car. <laughs> um, but I actually sort of sat back and observed myself going through this process of having this new car because you have all of the buildup and the excitement of yeah, you, you sort of go and test drive the cars and you sort of see them in the showroom and it's all, you know, everything looks and smells new and hey, isn't it great? And uh, what I spotted was for about four days, this was my new car. Hey, after four days, it started to become the car. <laughs> uh, 
uh, yeah, all of a sudden it had gone to being exactly the same as the car that I'd traded in against it. it nothing special. Yeah, this was now just this tin box that got me around. Uh, and to my cost, it I used a lot more petrol than the one I got rid of. Right. Um, yeah, so I think we have that, that you know, whatever it is, you know, we get this momentarily sort of satisfaction from having this new thing or this new experience. Then after a few days, it's kind of like, oh, that's just that thing. Um, so if you're unlucky, then you're on that treadmill of, oh, well, I need to repeat the experience or I need to have a different thing in order to keep the buzz going. Um, I, I'm thankful that where I'd got to was at least that awareness that, oh, that's how this works. Um, yeah, so let's not do that anymore. Right. One of the things you're pointing to and I'm reminded of is in my conversation, the first one that we... Uh, that Connie edited and posted up to YouTube mm. in this series with Sean Chamberlain, uh, who edited David Fleming's work, Lean Logic, uh, and then Surviving the Future. And mm. one of the things we talked about in that conversation and that I'm reminded of now in this conversation with you is that for most of human history, real wealth, real uh, uh, deep pleasure and deep enjoyment in life came from the simple things, playing music with your neighbors, uh, being a blessing to your community, your tribe, your, your village uh, uh, in some way. It's that relational stuff about real life and the arts uh, and music and, uh, and, and real heartful, vulnerable communication um, where, where that's, I think, the shining, one of the, one of the silver linings of the collapse that we're in, the contraction and collapse of industrial civilization is um, that we will need to rely on each other again. I, I often say that, you know, there are tens of millions, maybe, you know, a lot more than that, but there are at least tens of millions of young men in the quote unquote developed world um, who are profoundly addicted to internet gaming or internet porn or both. Mm -hmm. And that won't be the case when their communities need them. When their communities need them, they will be engaged in meaningful work again. Um, and yes, materially, things will be tougher or more challenging or less. But I think in terms of um, the things that really give life meaning, involvement in community, being a blessing to others and not focusing just on yourself, uh, I think it could be a, a potential salvation, to use a religious word, of an entire generation of young men, especially. I think we're sort of somewhere around the bargaining stage of grief in terms of Western civilization. I mean, it probably isn't in the entire of humanity. So I think other cultures are probably handling this differently. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you like, uh, we're at that stage of you know, things are going wrong and if only this person takes over or that person does something, then things will be okay. Uh, so in Britain, we're going through the whole Brexit thing. It's kind of, oh, you know, if only we leave the European Union, then we can go back to how things were back in the 60s. Right. Uh, yeah, America is doing, I mean, Trump was fairly explicit with make America great again. You know, it, it, uh, harking back to that past, you know, the American dream. You know, that, right. so, you know, this, is, this, is, this was our heritage. We were promised that we would have this forever onwards and upwards. Um, yeah, so you now have the other side who are screaming in the streets because Trump is a horrible person and whatever. Da, da, da. Similarly here, we have our Remainers who are, well, we've just got to set aside the vote and just, you know, we'll stay in the European Union anyway. And because that you know, sort of plays this bargaining and it flips over into the anger stuff. 
as it's kind of, oh, yeah, well, the reason that yeah, my life is getting worse is because those people over there are. Right. Um, now, I think yeah, possibly you'll get a depression stage after that. But you know, we desperately need to start moving towards an acceptance because actually none of these solutions that are being put on the table actually solve the problem. Right. Well, because uh, we're dealing with a predicament. It's not a problem. It's not a absolutely. set of problems that can be solved. It's a predicament that we now have to adapt to and live hmm. with. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the power station down the road has been taken offline and you're complaining to the, about the manufacturer of the light bulb because the light won't come on. <laughs> uh, well, no, you're out of power. <laughs> yeah, That's a good we, analogy. Yeah, We require, what is it, close to 100 million barrels of oil a day to keep this thing going. <laughs> And actually, we don't know how to keep 100 million barrels a day coming out of the ground. And kind of, uh, we've got this Red Queen syndrome at the moment where you're running to stand still. That, you know, we're having to put more and more effort in and we're getting less and less back. And as a result, everything outside the energy field is falling apart. Mm -hmm. And at this stage, everyone's pointing at the other side in whatever argument they choose to be having and saying it's all their fault. Mm -hmm. uh, to transcend that, we need to actually acknowledge that, no, 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 this is our predicament, that you know, this is the way things are. Uh, you know, the, it's not these guys. You know, they're doing the best they can, the same as you are. Um, I, what was the Buddhist saying? You know, uh, go and find, go and borrow a mustard seed from a house that's known no suffering. Right. You know, well, the moment, you know, I mean, there's plenty of people who will give you mustard seeds, but damn, you're not going to find a house that hasn't known any suffering. Uh, yeah, all of these people are experiencing their version of the collapse of industrial civilization. All of them are getting angry. All of them are looking for scapegoats to blame. All of them are hoping that some messiah is going to come along and say, take us to the promised land. Mm -hmm. Actually, all we have is ourselves and each other. <laughs> we are going to have to work this stuff out. I suspect, yeah, I mean, there could well be some pretty nasty stuff along the way. I mean, we are going to struggle to feed the people we've got. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I looked at, look at the collapse of the Soviet Union, which compared to what we're about to go through was probably fairly benign. But the male life expectancy went down to 50 years old. Um, now they did it largely with alcohol. I suspect America is going to start doing it with opioids. Mm -hmm. uh, but essentially, you'll have a bit more infant mortality at the bottom of the society. You'll have more premature deaths at the top. And quite conceivably, I mean, going back to my thing about not being able to send people to the moon anymore, quite conceivably, there will be medical conditions that we used to be able to treat that we will no longer be able to do. Um, that it will just become too energy intensive and too cost, effect, cost mm -hmm. constrained to actually carry on doing them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you, I, oncology strikes me. I mean, back in the days when I was campaigning on depression, you know, people were spending the equivalent of half of the NHS budget on a single cancer drug. Um, you, know, you could run several high schools for a year on one person's prescriptions. Uh, now, it strikes me that there's going to come a time where somebody, and of course, there'll be much howling and much pointing of fingers, but somebody is going to come along and say, no, we cannot continue that treatment. Um, <laughs> yeah, and again, we are going to have to come to terms with that. that yes, actually, exactly. I mean, I do myself. I have a, an ongoing illness that is incurable. I have to take immune suppressants every day to stop my system eating itself. Yeah, I, I, when this starts happening, I am likely to be a casualty of it fairly quickly. And so at a personal level, I have to come to terms with that. Um, yeah, I, in a sense, what I have to come to terms with there personally, I think as a civilization, we have to come to terms with. 
that actually there are a whole host of things that we promised ourselves we were going to be able to do that we probably aren't going to do. Um, yeah, and there are a lot of things that we'd rather we didn't have to do that we are very likely to have to start doing. Um, I think, I mean, from where I say, I live in the suburbs of a fairly small city. Uh, we practice something that I think has been labeled benign, benign indifference, which is what passes for a community, mm-hmm. which is kind of like I stick an eye out of the window and check that everything looks okay with the neighbors, but I'm not going to go and bother them if there's no reason. And I guess they're the same with me. We say our hellos in the street and kind of, you know, so we don't have animosity towards each other. It's just, we don't involve. Uh, now I think that will have to break down because we're going to have to learn to become a community. And actually you know, we're going to have to deal with the people that are around us, like it or not. Right. Um, you know, we don't get to choose you know, who we're going to interact with. We will interact with the people geographically in the same space. And we will have to arrive at solutions to the problems that nobody has actually thought through. Yes. Because uh, yeah, whichever way you dream or think through how you think the collapse is going to happen, I'll, I'll put money on it that it'll happen differently. Yeah. Um, you know, so I never predict it. I mean, I, my tendency is towards thinking it will be fairly slow. And that actually probably we've been in a slow motion collapse since the 1970s. The subtitle of your blog, uh, your uh, website is The Storm is Coming. Will you be ready? And so I'm curious if you could just take a few minutes and just um, share something about each of those. Like, how do you describe for people um, what the storm is that's coming? Um, and then how do you uh, recommend that uh, individuals and groups get ready? Okay, the storm is that confluence of the declining environment, the collapse of Earth's resources, and the collapse of the economy. Um, uh, my betting at the moment is that we're going to see the economy go first. Uh, so essentially this, this pretense that we've had over the last decade that if we keep printing money out of thin air, that in some way counts as rising living standards. Whereas I think increasingly the evidence is clear that living standards for most people are going down. Yes. Uh, you know, so, okay, if you're one of the lucky few that makes their money out of banking or the tech industry, then you're still seeing your pay packet go up but you're actually doing it at the expense of all of the people at the bottom at this yeah. stage. So it's gone from, if you like, the upward slope of industrial civilization meant that everybody could get better off because you know, we were bringing all of this new production online. We were bringing new resources in. It could all grow. Now we're in zero-sum territory where one person's growth has to be at the expense of somebody else's decline. Uh, and again, that translates into the political animosity that we have now where no side can get to win without disenfranchising the other side. Uh, so of course, that, that's very embittering. I think probably the next visible one will be, I, I mean, I think peak oil may come back. One of the big hits that's on the horizon that we do know is coming, again, we don't know fully how it's going to unfold, is the new International Maritime Organization rules on ship fuel. Uh, so that they're no longer able to burn bunker oil, which used to be the sort of dregs that were left over after you'd got rid of all of the good stuff. We used to use that for powering the shipping industry. They're now going to switch over to diesel. Uh, the problem with that is there ain't enough diesel to go round. So 
yeah, if the ships are using diesel, then what are we going to use to power the lorries and the agricultural machinery? And if they're using the diesel, what about all of the people that have diesel cars? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it, yeah, exactly how that one plays out, I don't know, but it probably means the price of food and the price of goods goes up. And that a lot of people who were just about getting by in their household budget suddenly aren't going to be getting by. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of how you weather that storm, uh, I mean, I'm hoping I'm doing the right thing, but if the crash is too great, then it probably doesn't matter anyway. I, I've downsized pretty much everything that I do. So I got rid of the car, I've got rid of the television, I'm sort of cut down to, I mean, ideally just taking the food that I need to get me through the week. Mm -hmm. uh, now I've taken at a small scale sort of growing a bit of food, but I mean, it's, I mean, if we're serious, the yeah. amount of land I've got, I'd feed myself for a day, then I'd starve to death. <laughs> exactly. uh, I mean, I planted a pear tree in the back garden earlier in the year. It's got one pear on it, which <laughs> apparently is good for a newly planted tree, but yeah, that ain't going to keep you in. You know, <laughs> that'll stop you being hungry for an hour. <laughs> um, yeah, I do being serious there. I mean, if as this unfolds, what I suspect we will end up doing, although it will be very painful to get there, is we will farm suburbia. Yes, of course. Uh, that essentially we're going to demolish sort of three out of every four houses that we have. Everyone's going to move into the remaining one and we'll have rooms, not homes. Uh, and we will farm the land that's, that we've now recovered by demolishing the buildings. Unless, of course, uh, abrupt climate change um, destroys the, the predictability um, uh, of rain and drought and uh, heat and cold. As long as the climatic patterns don't completely devastate our ability to grow food, um, the vision you just articulated, I think, makes the most sense, which is a lot of suburbia gets used as farmland. How do you think about mortality and death, your own? and at a larger level, our species level, and has that, has, been, has that been a tool that's supported you in, I mean, you're one of the few people who really is knowledgeable and writes well about a wide range of collapse-related stuff. Hmm. Um, so has mortality, has your thinking about mortality and death been a support to you in some way? Uh, so, well, at times. I mean, at other times it gets scary. Uh, <laughs> yes, of course. I, I practice yoga regularly. Uh, yeah, I mean, you get to places there in meditation that are, have a similar resonance to death. So there's a void that you will come across that I'm told, and I've never had the guts to do it, that if you throw yourself in, you do come through. Now, that I've never had the courage to do because it feels like annihilating the self. Uh, you know, I trust the teachers that tell you that you have to do it. Actually getting to the point where you stand over that void in meditation takes a hell of a lot of practice. And I've experienced it no more than five times in my life. Uh, you know, so uh, this is the last time I experienced it was probably more than a decade ago on a meditation retreat in the mountains of France. <laughs> Uh, you're kind of miles from anywhere. And the you know, retreats are great. Again, another privilege of industrial civilization that for a lucky few of us, we were able to do things like that. Mm -hmm. um, in a much more simple society, you're going to have to sort of work through your spiritual stuff much more communally. Um, you know, so yes, I mean, having that experience and actually starting to incorporate that idea that I myself do not go on. Um, 
you know, in a way, it, it makes the decline of industrial civilization easier to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, I, one of the things I've had since I was very young is an awareness of death. Uh, uh, one of the things that I've had, I have no idea how to explain this, but I know when people are going to die. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, it's not quite a visual thing. Is it? I mean, it isn't just, oh, so-and-so is really old and they haven't got long for the world. I mean, we can all do that one. I've been around people who are younger than I am now, you know, who I've sort of looked at and thought, oh, shit. Mm. Uh, and sure enough, within a week. Um, now, I don't know what that is, but I, as a result, growing up with that, I've always had that awareness that if you like, things come into the world, they grow, they mature, then they start to decline, then they go. Uh, you know, so that we have that cycle pattern. Uh, and of course, when you look at how we think about ourselves, a lot of the baby boom generation were brought up almost to deny death. We'll freeze ourselves until somebody figures out how to do immortality. <laughs> yeah, then I can go on forever. Yeah, I mean, God knows the planet is populated, overpopulated with the living without the dead getting in on the act. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yes, yeah, I mean, things are cycler. So, uh, yeah, the story of progress itself then becomes nonsensical because there's nothing in nature that we know of that does that. Right. Um, you know, so you know, to look at it cyclically, yes, we've been part, you know, we are now past the apex, we're on the downslope. Uh, yeah, actually, things are still pretty bloody good if, you know, if we're honest. Yeah, yes. um, I would say at this day, if I was advising anyone, I'd. I'd tend not to give advice to people, largely because you end up being responsible for what you <laughs> yeah, So look, go away and learn it for yourself. But yeah, I mean, if I was advising anyone of anything at this stage, it would be simplify your life. Yes. Uh, so essentially, I'll go through as, I mean, look at people around me who commute to work. So you're running this car that's costing you £5,000 a year, perhaps, by the time you've added the taxes and the insurances and all of the fuel then the work is stressing you out. So you've got this whole overhead in extra, extra food, in cigarettes, in alcohol, and all of the other stuff that you do to de-stress from the job. So if you add up all of those things that are the cost of just having your job and deduct those from the salary you get from your job, yes. that tells you the salary that you need if you're going to live just where you are living simply. So actually, rather than chasing this sort of career ladder that's going to go away anyway, you know, what about looking at what works for me locally? So what could I do locally? It might be you know, 10 grand a year less than what I'm used to, but actually it's going to be a lot less stressful. I'm going to be closer to home. I can meet the people around me. I can start to engage with things because I've got energy left over at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is a life to be carved out even now in that direction that perhaps sets you up a bit better for what's coming. Yes. Uh, so I think the real casualties are going to be these guys that are chasing that kind of hamster wheel of a career ladder, uh, you know, who've internalized this idea that ever onwards and upwards and more is better. I think they are the ones that will psychologically experience this far harder. Yeah, the, the, um, uh, in my evening program, I have a slide on those especially deserving of compassion and generosity. And uh, one of them is... Uh, techno-optimists and free market fundamentalists mm. who will remain in denial the longest and yet be hardest hit when uh, reality bites emotionally and, and, and physically. Mm. Um, I, I'm reminded of John Michael Greer's book, uh, Collapse Now and Avoid the Rush. 
uh, that <laughs> idea of simplifying. Uh, it, I love that book because it's really mm. a collection of some of his best blog posts uh, on this Arch Druid report over 11 years. But mm. that notion, that notion of downscaling or living more simply, he has a simple formula that I found useful just because I can remember it. L-E-S-S, that we would all do well to get, re to get used to and adapt to less energy, less stuff, and less stimulation, L-E-S-S. -S. Get used to hmm. less energy, less stuff, and less stimulation. Uh, that's, hmm. It's a way that we can all sort of collapse now and avoid the rush. <laughs> yeah, How do, uh, one of my experiences with going on retreat, which I try to do as regularly as I can, is that you reach a point where you drop in after a day or so. I mean, you have to throw off all of the shit that we carry around with us all the time. It goes back to what I was saying about the boundaries that you, I mean, you don't drop them all together. That's unhealthy, but you kind of soften them. Uh, yeah, so if you go away on a week's retreat somewhere, so you're now going to be with these people, you may not know them. Uh, yeah, there are just these people that you are coming together to share an experience for a week. Nobody knows how it's going to end up. Nobody knows what you're going to experience. You don't know what they're going to experience. It's just going to happen. And all that actually matters is that your feet are on the floor, you're in your body, you're ready to actually have that encounter. Yes. Uh, as I say, initially you go through all of the bullshit because everyone talks about, hello, who are you, what do you do, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then it starts to drop off and it's you know, actually you start to see real people. You see it in people's yeah. eyes, that you know, people become alive. Um, yeah, you know, actually just having that experience, you're know, being able to work with people in that way. I think, again, goes back to that building communities. Uh, I, somebody once likened it, I use it occasionally as a bit of a mischievous line that we need to get to living like the mafia used to live. Like who? Uh, like the mafia. Oh, the mafia, yes. If you remember the mafia, they'd come and do you a favor. Yeah, and God help you if you didn't return it. But actually, that is the way people lived for centuries. You know, so our way of doing things is everything has a monetary value. Um, you know, their way of doing things was, look, I'm going to do something for you, but I expect you to do something in return when I need it. Exactly. Uh, essentially, most people outside, I mean, a handful of people in medieval time that actually had money, the majority of people worked on that favor basis. So you have things like tally sticks where you'd make a notch, you know, yeah, I've done a favor for you. You know, so I'm hungry this week. You know, I need some flour. Well, you know, shit, right? Here's your flour. Uh, but you know, God help me if next year when I've got eggs and you need something, I don't give you a dozen eggs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's that way that you build community bond. I, it, I think I wrote in The Consciousness of Sheep, or it may have been in the book that I did about money, that one of the reasons why we disapprove so much of prostitution is because it, I mean, it isn't to do with sex. It's actually that I am, so if I use a prostitute, I'm not, it's not that I'm having sex. What I'm paying for is the ability to walk away. Uh, so if you like, whereas a healthy sexual relationship, I have, a, I now have a relationship with someone. Yes, there's an, ob there's an obligation, there's a relationship, wow. Yeah, whereas what prostitution does is kind of said, look, here's some money, now I don't have that. Now, extrapolate from that the way we're living, that we do that kind of monetary economy stuff with other people. Of course, it's going to have the same impact. So you know, when I say, well, how much do you want for that? I'm effectively saying, I don't want a relationship with you. <laughs> Just take my money and go away. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> uh, over, the, over the generations, we've lost that contact. We've lost that community right. because we think in monetary terms. Yes, exactly. Uh, 
no, it, it hasn't altogether gone away because obviously I mean, within families, we tend to work on non-monetary favor. Uh, I, there's a kind of understanding that doesn't always work that, you know, basically when you're a kid, I'm going to wipe your backside for you. And when I'm in my dotage, you're going to do the same back for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, now that doesn't always work out that way. But I mean, if the relationship is healthy, your children will grow up and eventually will look after you as you decline. Um, you know, equally, uh, as we sort of redevelop community around us, you know, we have to get into the same sort of process of trading on obligation rather than thinking in monetary terms, exactly. what is this costing me? Or, uh, so essentially, if my neighbor is in need of something, and I mean, then you've got all of the other problems that we had to invent ways around of what do I do if my neighbor's actually a scrounging sod who's going to take, take, take and never give back. Uh, yeah, but of course, I mean, back in medieval times, if you got cast out of your village, it was a death sentence. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, I mean, because of the nature of our civilization, we think of being able to move around as such a, a normal thing. I remember somebody told me or explained to me what, you had a thing called sending somebody to Coventry, if you know the expression. Uh, it's essentially when, so, when somebody breaks a strike that you refuse to talk to them anymore, you have nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd always taken it at face value that, oh, that just means that you'd stop talking to that person. It's actually derived from the mining industry, where basically when you had a buildup of methane gas or mining gases, you would actually tell people, oh, yeah, it's time to run. Because if you were somebody that had been sent to Coventry, nobody told you. Yeah. So again, it was a death sentence. And it's essentially, how do we enforce community solidarity? Yes, exactly. Well, we have these sort of rules, and if you transgress them, then you know, by not honoring your obligations to the community, the community will no longer uh, sort of look after you. Um, I mean, when I worked in the railway industry, I mean, the same deal with working to rule, that yeah, you wouldn't shout at the guy who'd broken the strike that he was about to get run over by. <laughs> wagons. Uh, you know, so each industry developed its way of doing right, it. Of course. Um, of course. You know, now, again, I, I, one of the things that we used to have, uh, I, one of the things, a piece of research I did years and years ago on old people's homes, uh, which turned out to be a very modern thing. I'd assumed they'd been, they were around forever. It turns out that prior to the late 19th century, there wasn't really a concept of old age. It's a very modern construct. Mm. What mattered was how able you were. Mm -hmm. So essentially, if you were 90 and physically fit and able and still compass mentis, you carried on doing your daily chores. And yeah, if you could be of service to the community in some way, that was mm. value. Now, on the other hand, if you were you know, 50 years old, but you were severely disabled and you know, everyone knew it was through no fault of your own, then the community saw it as an obligation to look after you. Yes. Uh, now, part of the, the, so the modern world, we have this transition from what we used to have as parish relief, which is essentially the parish looked after its own. And I mean, the parish being a small enough unit that you can do that. Mm -hmm. With industrialization, with people moving into the urban areas, you no longer were able to run things at a parish level because you had too many people coming and going. And somebody that comes and goes, you, know, you don't know whether they're scrounging or not to kind of so we developed gradually all of these modern social security systems that become incredibly bureaucratic and it's all focused on how do we stop people taking what they're not entitled to. Mm -hmm. uh, in the process, you usually end up discriminating against far more people who don't get what they're entitled to. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and it's largely because, again, we're living in this urban civilization that doesn't honor obligation to people. Um, you know, now again, so if you like, if we're looking at potential benefits from a collapse, getting back to a stage where we actually know each other and we understand our obligations to each other will be a big benefit. So you have two things that I picked up this year that are fairly new phenomena, but I think are collapse related, is the English middle classes have started making jam and they've started buying lots of secondhand clothing. Yeah, there you go. And the way they're doing it is to justify it through sustainability. Yes. So it's kind of, I'm not doing this because I now don't have the income or the money doesn't go as far as it used to. I'm now doing it because it's a, it's a sin to throw out all this used clothing. Exactly. So again, we will never admit that actually you know, things have got that bad that I'm now living out of the secondhand shop. It's moving from you know, what would I like to have you know, at this particular moment into what do I actually need? Uh, and sure, I mean, I don't need you know, somebody in Bangladesh to sort of go blind at an early age just to produce throwaway garments for me to wear once. And then, uh, you know, so actually, yes, I can go down to the local charity shop and buy secondhand clothing that is almost as good as new. Now, one of the things I learned from my wife, who uh, came from Ukraine, uh, one of their things was that you instantly changed out of any of your going out clothes as soon as you got home. So I had my sort of tracky bottoms and t-shirts that basically I will wear. Yeah, I mean, actually beyond the point that they need washing often. <laughs> kind of, yeah, basically for groping around the house, if I'm going to spill food in, or spill my tea down the front of myself or whatever, or at least I'm not damaging my good clothes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and actually, I mean, I think more of that kind of stuff probably is worth doing. It's part of that simplification. Now, I guess you know, one way or another, we're going to have to go there with food as well, which is slightly more problematic. Yeah. Do not assume that advanced Western civilizations are not susceptible to famine. Because uh, actually, we are dependent on global supply chains that if they break down, it is us, not the third world, who are going to starve. Yes. Um, uh, the other thing I'd point out is that every revolution that there's ever been that's involved sort of bloodshed and violent overthrow, every one of them starts with food riots. Uh, where I think we're going is a fairly rapid and probably not altogether pleasant depopulation. Yes, of course. Um, and I think that the advanced civilizations in the West are the most vulnerable. And again, yeah, I mean, there's this tendency in the political debate to think it's the third world we've got to look after. Uh, was it Derek Jensen was saying something the other day about how, no, 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 in the third world, they would love industrialization, industrial civilization to stop because then they can go back to farming the land and they haven't got to give their water to Coca-Cola. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, they'll do reasonably well out of it because they're already living at levels of kind of material wealth that they'll have to live with anyway. It is us, you know, with all of our complex supply chains. Yeah, I, and if those supply chains go down too quickly, then I think we have real trouble. Because um, one of these days, those supply chains are going to cease altogether. Um, yeah, and then we're falling back. I, I, Britain certainly has, uh, you have to go back to the 1650s to the last time Britain was self-sufficient. Uh, and I think even then there were various luxury goods that got brought in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, people talk in terms of the Second World War that, oh, you know, we, our grandparents went through hardship. But yeah, even then you had these convoys of ships coming across from the USA, keeping the whole supply chain going then. Um, you know, so we, there was never a time in modern, in industrial society where we were able to be independent. 
Well, Tim, any last thoughts on this theme of post-doom? We, we, we didn't talk <laughs> about the language much at the beginning, but I'm just curious. Any, any last thoughts? And then how, how do people uh, you know, share anything you want in, in conclusion? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, part of it is like the grieving process. Part of it is I mean, one of the things I consider myself lucky with is having gone through the experience of recovering from depression. I've been a lot more resilient to actually uncovering this stuff and writing about it. Because uh, initially going through it, uh, I mean, I was as shocked as anyone would be. I, mean, I was kind of aware there's a climate problem. Um, yeah, actually, the more you dig into that, you realize that, well, climate is just the subheading and there's this whole other environment catastrophe going on that's even bigger. And then you go beyond that and say, well, hang on, it's not just the environment, it's that the resources of the earth that we've relied on are gone as well. Uh, you know, then the way that we're living is falling apart and yeah, actually there doesn't seem to be a way of stopping that. I think uh, uh, thus far I'm the only person to write this and it, it's contentious. I reckon that the cause of the European Enlightenment was to do with a massive influx of sugar from the colonies in the Americas and in the West Indies into Europe. Uh, that plus the stimulant that you had from caffeine and tobacco. So you had the drug stimulants gave you a change of mindset and the sugar gave you this huge energy boost. Yeah. Uh, so that for the first time, people actually were able to sit down in salons and think about ideas. Uh, yeah, it, it was an accident. Uh, yeah, and of course, since then, we've developed ways of increasing the amount of energy available to more and more people yeah. in such a way that we've developed all of these specialized areas of knowledge. Uh, now, I think one of the things that will go with collapse is the specialization. Yeah, again, you know, part of our religion of progress is, no, 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 we must keep knowing more and more about everything actually there may come a time where a lot of what we know now becomes just surplus to requirement. Tim, this has been far ranging. Um, I just so appreciate uh, your work and uh, your vulnerability in this, in this conversation as well. For somebody who goes to consciousnessofsheep.co.uk, um, how, uh, you know, uh, help walk somebody through how to, how to make use of that. Okay, so when you get there, there's going to be, there's broadly four sections on there. So you've got a section that deals with energy issues. You've got a section that deals with economic issues. There's a section that deals with the environmental issues. And I've got a sort of society thing that I tend to use for everything else. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it's kind of, I mean, a lot of the stuff in the other three, I call them the three E's. Mm -hmm. A lot of them sort of cross-connect anyway, but, you know, so I, I often think, well, this article could go in either one of these, but I'll put it in this one. Yes. Uh, no, the sugar one will be in the society one, I think, just because, I mean, at the time I was wanting to have a dig at Pinker. Um, yeah, and partly it sort of struck me that, hang on, yeah, nobody, yeah, we have these events in history and we kind of think, oh, the European Enlightenment, that's part of our linear progress. But nobody explains, well, why did that happen? You know, sort of why Northern Europe? Why then? Um, yeah, so again, I, you know, the article itself, I dug into, there's a guy at Stanford University called Philip Morris. Uh, he wrote a book called Why the West Rules for Now. Yes, I read it. Uh, so one of his things is about you know, the trade winds and the ocean gyres that allow Europeans to get to America reasonably predictably mm -hmm. using sailing ships. Uh, that whereas the Chinese could only get there sort of as a trade mission, as it were. You, there was no way you could resource a colony. 
3,000 miles was just enough for the European, the Northwestern Europeans to land colonies. Right, exactly. Uh, so we did what Northern Europeans have done ever since, which is sort of bribe one group of the indigenous people to help us in a war with the other group. Exactly. Uh, and gradually use divide and rule to sort of extend across the continent and eventually across the world. Um, you know, which all I can say is it not my fault, honestly. <laughs> I'm just a part of this and a small cog. Uh, yeah, and I don't think anyone perhaps even consciously, you know, I think that if you like, part of the mechanism is just the inbuilt way the, the system works. It sort of just has this built in almost like an operating system. Yeah. That you know, Western civilization either grows and expands or it collapses. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, so in a sense, uh, yes, we can point to any time in history and say, well, if only we'd stopped then. But the problem was if we'd stopped then, it would have collapsed. Yes. I mean, it would yeah. have been a lot easier to collapse from there. <laughs> Uh, so what we've done is kept the machine growing because yeah. that's what the machine does. Right. We're now at the point where we've hit these limits. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.